guys. Welcome to another episode of History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley. Today we're going to be talking about guns in times of crises. Ashley, why would we be talking about that? So right now, we're actually all in different states. We've got Camila, our producer in Montana. I'm in Arizona, and Danny is in Cody, Wyoming. And the reason for that is because of the global pandemic of the COVID-19 coronavirus. And so we're all kind of working from home, uh, except for Danny, who is living in the museum now. Um, but the reason that we thought this might be an interesting topic is because, you know, a lot of, t- uh, a lot of things you see in the news right now, people are talking about going out and buying toilet paper and there's all kinds of jokes about that and buying food but one of the other things that I've seen a bunch on social media is people talking about purchasing firearms and purchasing ammunition and my husband being an ammo salesman I know that that's you know the ammo sales are through the roof right now and there's also a lot of first time gun buyers that's occurring right now and Danny and I were kind of chatting offline about the fact that you know this isn't the first time that firearms and ammunition have played a role in a global crisis Uh, so we thought maybe we would talk more broadly about, you know, when, you know, the world is going to war or there's something that's happening, you know, what goes on in the gun world um, and with individuals. And you can kind of trace that throughout history because it's kind of similar. Yeah. And, you know, I was, I sort of, you sort of took it along like domestic civilian issues that this has cropped up before in. And I thought of some, you know, military, um, you know, mentioned like when we were talking about this beforehand, mentioned World War One is a big one. Um, and then thinking about it some more, I think the U.S. Civil War is another example of like firearms manufacturing um, around the world was heavily impacted by that. And, you know, it's a crisis for the United States. Um, but then the Enfield factory in England is building like almost a million Enfield rifles to send over to the U.S. So there's lots of sort of examples of when um, even if it's just a single country hit with a crisis of it really impacting having an international impact in to firearms. Yeah. Well, and if you think about in World War One, I, I mean, we've talked a lot about how, like, basically, as the war's uh, ramping up, that, like, none of the companies are really prepared um, with more modern guns for the war. And then there's this massive escalation in, you know, global arms manufacturing. America plays a huge role in that before we even engage in the war ourselves. And it's interesting to me, and I have a question for you because, so you get this massive influx in production and even opening up other factories so that you can build to the quantity that you would need in, in a time of, you know, global war. And then after the war, we see, you know, a lot of bankruptcy, a lot of issues, um, with trying to maintain production once you've elevated the numbers and then companies getting creative and going outside of their comfort zone and making all kinds of things like Winchester did with figure skates and rollerblades and all that stuff. But my question, because we've talked about that before, is do you think that in these times uh, these times of global crisis where we might be either shopping more or you know making more, producing more to fulfill a need, does that actually inspire ingenuity or does it stifle it in the long run? Um, I think it inspires it because, um, you know, look at like going back to the episode that we keep talking about that we never actually release. <laughs> that's going to go down. If this podcast is popular, that's going to go down as like the secret episode. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when World War II breaks out. Look for it. Sorry. As What's that? What's that? Camila, Camila, like. Camila, like five years from now when she hates us, is going to be like, ha ha ha, 
submit and like release it to the world. <laughs> For sure. Right, anyways, continue. anyways, <laughs> anyways. Um, yeah. So like when World War II breaks out, uh, you know, the U.S. is sort of they see it coming, so they're a little bit prepared. But you know, Winchester essentially invents the M1 carbine from you know no working prototype um, to winning the contract to build these for the army in just a couple of months. Like the whole time frame is just a crazy time frame by peacetime standards. Um, you know, so there's that sort of expediency. You know, if you look back to like the civil war, um, you know, before the civil war, the U S was really slow about experimenting with any kind of breech loading or repeating firearm. Uh, and then the Civil War breaks out, and all these ideas that had been shelved by the Ordnance Department um, suddenly are on the table because the Northern Army just needs guns of any kind, whether they work or not. And, you know, some of the designs don't. You know, there are some really poor designs that get adopted, but there's also some really great designs that might not have gone anywhere had it not been for the conflict. So in that sense, I think there is some um, innovation when you're looking at that sort of war as a crisis of, you know, engineering or supply or something like that. Well, see, and I think like I, I agree with you in, in that respect. But the one thing that I would disagree with is, you know, we get a lot of short term ingenuity, but then it stifles again as soon as the conflict is over. And, you know, hopefully maybe I'm being a little bit too like naive, but it'd be nice to not need a crisis in order to have development. And that's just kind of across the board. So I don't know. I, I might say that in the short term, it shows a lot of ingenuity and engineering and we get a lot of really interesting inventions that have real world applications beyond the military and the civilian market and the sporting market and the target shooting market. But I also think that then it stops and like we don't keep pushing forward. And I would say that in the long run, that would probably, I don't know, hurt us because what if we didn't have another crisis? I mean, that'd be awesome. You know, would we just kind of all rest on our laurels eating potato chips like we might be doing right now? Well, I don't know when potato chips were invented. So I don't know if civil war designers could eat those. <laughs> they were eating hardtack. Hardtack. Just left of art. <laughs> Breaking their teeth left and right. <laughs> That's a good reference because, like, there was a lot of leftover hardtack, I'm sure, at the end of the war. But, like, the design did go in spurts. And then at the end of the Civil War, the U.S. Army, like, instead of just sort of staying at the same levels, like, nope, we're going back to 25,000 soldiers. Everybody go home. And then they sold off all the extra rifles. Like, and so then civilian manufacturers, like, could not compete with surplus firearms on the market because if you can go buy an old musket for three dollars why would you buy a winchester for 30 or 40 dollars um especially when it's not you know it ha it's new it's kind of un yeah untested isn't necessarily the right word but you know you kind of get where i'm going is i can tell you're trying very hard not to say it's not it's every bit as good as the military guns <laughs> you know it's also, I'm going to interject for a second because for a solid minute of that explanation, I really thought we were still talking about hard deck. <laughs> I mean, it was true. Like the U.S. Army did sell a ton of its surplus, like regular goods, not just guns. Yeah. So I'm sure there was some cases of hard deck going out too. <laughs> Would they have then used that for construction projects? I mean, I guess they could have. <laughs> Anyways, why buy a $30 Winchester when you can have a $6 Springfield? basically it's one of those things where like yeah the winchester is in like absolute terms 
is probably a better gun for you if you're heading out west. But the Springfield musket or rifle will probably do most of what you need for a real fraction of the cost. And, you know, I think that was a real world decision that a lot of people faced in the 1860s and 70s. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's interesting to me because like, so you've got like kind of how the the arms industry reacts in all sorts of situations. I mean, right now, um, you know, you can't get a lot of stuff because everyone's sold out because nobody anticipated something like this. Um, but I'm also interested in like, because I mean, if you think about it, if we go back to the Second Amendment and the conversation about civilian, you know, civilians getting together and militias, you know, I'm kind of also curious about um is there a historical response to civilian reaction to, uh, you know, two things that are going on in the world? Uh, you know, the one thing that I can think of, and this isn't necessarily like a crisis in terms of like a pandemic or a war, but like, look at what happens, um, after the, after World War II into the 1960s with the civil rights movement and trying for that, you know, for a group of people to try to, you know, get equal rights, um, in the country. And so it's a little bit different, but at the same time, I mean, a lot of those people start arming up as well. So you've got, um, you know, you've got, armed radical activists that are deciding to arm themselves because they don't trust, you know, the government, they know that they need to protect themselves. And so you get all of these pamphlets and like Berkeley, California, they produce a pamphlet called the, uh, self-defense or handguns and self-defense for radicals, revolutionaries, and easy riders. And then there are other pamphlets that pop up done by different groups of people, um, that are trying to fight for, you know, kind of their rights. And they do use firearms as both a metaphor and they use firearms in practice, in the practice sense and they actively purchase but then they also actively train in order to protect themselves uh, from you know a, a danger and I, th- I just think it's kind of interesting that the civilian human resp- like individual response to it throughout history I'm trying to think of a earlier example other than the 60s I'm sure there are yeah I mean, I'm sure there are too and but it's it's kind of interesting as we're talking this out you know we're a little bit off of like what we initially said we were going to go but it's like we have three sort I of didn't categories. Agree to anything. Right. <laughs> we uh you know, we we've talked about sort of like the military national level response to like you know, war as a crisis. And then we're talking about sort of you know, what we're witnessing right now is almost a it's like a really short term at least so far um you know, people responding to what's been happening over a few weeks uh or a few months. And then what you're talking about is something like people's response to a longer term crisis that's happening mm-hmm. over many decades. Or, se- or, or longer than that. <laughs> you know, there's generational struggle there. But, you know, for the individual, it might be, you know, a few years or a few decades. Um, you know, it's almost sort it's like three kind of categories, I guess. Yeah. But it's interesting that like all three of those categories involve, you know, stocking up, arming up, training up, you know, on multiple levels, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. And and I think there's parallels, even though they're really different in scope. You know, um, I made the reference when we like when we were first starting to talk about this is like, you know, people are referencing the fact that everybody's going out to their gun shop or going online to buy up ammo and guns or whatever. And that's its own interesting phenomena. But isn't that really similar to how like allied governments in world war one, like 
oh, crap, we don't have enough guns to fight this huge multinational war now. Uh, hey, USA, you're the last store that's open. Let's buy <laughs> everything you have. I like that. <laughs> that is a, a good analogy. And I'm proud of you for bringing it back to that text message conversation we had before this, <laughs> before this podcast. But it's true, uh, you know, because there is that kind of, you know, crossover in terms of reaction, because even the military is full of individuals and humans. And if humans in their personal lives are going to respond that way, I mean, they're going to respond that way strategically in times of war, which makes a ton of sense. Well, and to take it one step further, and this might be too much of a stretch, but, you know, for, you know, like looking at, say, the British government or the U.S. government right before the World Wars, you know, and as you said, there's this impetus during the conflict for things to innovate and happen. But then after the conflict's over, it goes away. And before the conflict, you know, nobody's really that interested. You might get a few people kind of street corner profits forecasting something really bad. But, you know, that doesn't mean that Congress is going to appropriate enough money to stockpile the 2 million rifles it needs for World War One. Yeah. Um, and in the same way, like if you're looking at people now, like everybody can look and say like, oh, these people should have gone out ahead of time and, you know, they should have bought a, a personal defense handgun and gotten training on it and bought enough ammo to last them for a while just in case something like this happened. But, you know, we as individuals, you know, not everybody has that luxury of being able to sort of forecast that out and make that a part of their, but you know, their day-to-day -day concerns last year uh, are really different from right now. And so what they, you know, the crises they might've had to face in their household didn't necessarily involve, yeah, you know what, probably a year from now, I bet I'll need 500 <laughs> rounds of nine millimeter. Which is actually a true statement because Danny has started uh, shooting more competitively. And what was that? You said like a couple of weeks ago, you were like, oh, you know, I could really go for some more nine millimeter. And then, <laughs> now you like can't get any. And that wasn't even for a personal defense. That was for target shooting. I was like, uh, you know what? Last month I have enough for right now. I'm probably good. <laughs> and then I look this weekend. And I'm like, oh, that was dumb. <laughs> Well, yeah, and the, I mean, the reality is, is you can't anticipate, you know, things happening. I mean, something like this is so unprecedented. I mean, yeah, we've had global pandemics in the past, but it's so different now than it, than it, than it has been, or it really seems. I'm not a, I'm not a medical expert, so I'm not going to even pretend like I can understand the trends of historic diseases. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things of the, the, the thing that a lot of gun people preach of the preparedness. Um, and then, you know, where well, I think a lot of people live their lives, which is just, you know, living their life and not really thinking about this kind of thing. And we see it happen time and time again throughout history. And so I don't know. I, I don't, there's a lot of criticism that comes on to a lot of people that are trying to buy guns right now. And it's just kind of an interesting thing. And I think you make a good point about the luxury of, you know, <laughs> um, getting something ahead of time. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, in a, in a perfect situation, we could all sort of foresee like, all right, I need this much money in my bank account to survive, you know, to be able to buy food for this long, or I need this much, you know, non-perishable food to, and there's definitely some point to like, think about that kind of thing. But, you know, it, for a, a lot of us, for most of the time, it seems like a remote possibility. So for me, at least it's easy to see why that gets pushed on the back burner, especially when, you know, a household or a person might only have limited financial resources, Yeah, you know, well, sort of like a peacetime government. Well, and even like for us, you know, we keep cash in the house 
I'm not telling you where. But we keep cash in the house. And then in the past couple of weeks, we had a couple of like expenses that were cash expenses. So we just used it and we didn't replenish it. And now the banks are out of money, you know? So, I mean, even people who, you know, have the resources and stuff, you know, things happen and you just kind of don't anticipate them. Um, I would love to know more about, uh, maybe this is Ashley's homework while she's in lockdown at her house in Arizona, would be to learn more about public response and like, you know, institutional response to diseases throughout history, like smallpox, you know? Well, I mean, our response was kind of douchey, our response being the U.S., but I won't get into that. Well, and, you know, I mean, it's not to say that, like, firearms play a huge role in every, um, like, every crisis that there is. It's just you can see some of these where it's happened at different levels that it has become a topic. You know, this one, it's become a topic for this specific one. Um, You know, some of these things have passed where it's not a real, it hasn't been a big concern. So, Camila, I have a question for you. Are you going to buy a firearm now? No, I'm not going to buy a gun. But why do you think people feel like they need a gun in these type of moments? Well, I've been sort of paying attention to like stuff that gets said online. And, and, you know, people are it seems like people suspect, you know, with when people are like buying out stores, you know, we saw that start to happen. And then people expect like, all right, as stores start to run out of stuff, then maybe people turn to looting. Like that's like the next step that people seem to be trying to anticipate. Which we've we've seen historically um, happen. So I think it's a, you know, a validated fear. Yeah, yeah I think a lot of people are like, I need things are getting crazy. Maybe this will help me protect myself. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's yeah. the, th- the train of thought that a lot of people um, are getting t- into, especially people that maybe aren't familiar with firearms or only have sort of a, you know, a standoff or tangential relationship with firearms so far. You know, for a lot of people that are familiar, they've already thought about those sort of personal protection reasons for maybe owning a gun. But um other people, I think that it's sort of new to them are making that jump now. Yeah. Well, and it's kind of an interesting thing because even though, you know, it's, it's an unpleasant circumstance and they may not continue to, um, you know, think about guns beyond once we're, you know, in the clear of this particular, you know, crisis and pandemic, you know, it'll be interesting to see, I'm interested to see how people who wanted to get a gun, you know, during this time period kind of react post everything. I mean, do they, you know, still own the gun? Do they put it in the safe with no ammo, you know, until the next thing, do they actually go out and target shoot? You know, it'd be kind of interesting to see, but I do think it is also, interesting and and this is not me trying to get into politics but this is just me talking about like kind of legislative history and the reality of the matter is is that there's been a lot of laws you know that have been passed in certain areas for certain reasons and I think it's in times like these when we actually start to see you know how those laws go into effect and how they can adversely you know or correctly uh you know affect the civilian population when people are trying to acquire these firearms i just think it's really interesting you know and in some respects you could probably argue but they're also keeping the guns out of the hands of people that would be doing the looting um you know versus the people who want to protect themselves from the looting but it is kind of interesting to see because so many laws go on the book that don't really impact the bulk of the population and then something happens and it makes you think about the law that's been put in place and whether or not it's actually helping uh is it hurting is it doing a combination of the two i think it's kind of interesting yeah and it's funny because like again going back to sort of observing from afar online like one of 
and again, I, I don't want to get into the politics of like waiting periods, yeah. but that's one that like people that don't know anything about guns, they're like going to a gun shop being told, all right, you got to wait three days, seven days, 10 days, whatever it is. Um, things that, you know, those places decided was their standard during sort of normal times. Um, and people seem, you know, obviously the voters in those jurisdictions decided that's what was, you know, that was what they wanted. Um, but now they're faced with this situation where maybe that can be a detriment and somebody that would be perfectly legal to go buy the gun otherwise, um, shows up and, you know, in the middle of a crisis like this, they're like, well, I don't want to wait 10 days. What do I do? And gun owners are like, uh, that's the rules. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, so I think like, you know, we've been talking for a long time on the on all different types of crises with firearms. I think the moral of the story really is in all of these scenarios, is there a way that we can be less reactionary and, you know, set up, you know, preventative issues in the future? So like in terms of in- innovation in any technology, you know, why do we wait for war to drive that innovation? Or why do we wait for something bad to drive that innovation? And the same with laws, you know, why are we waiting, you know, till the laws are passed to, to know exactly how they would affect people. And so I think it's, I think it's the, it's a tale as old as time. I feel like to some extent, cause you always hear that. How can we not be reactionary? How can we not be reactionary? Well, maybe we should try now. Any days as good as any. <laughs> yeah. Maybe any day is as good as any, but it, you know, this, you were talking like, serious studies into the human psyche now that we are not qualified for we are not qualified so we should just stop (laughs) i don't know it's it's one of those things humans are in some ways kind of i don't know if immediacy or reactionary is the the right word but we kind of have to deal with what's in front of us at a specific time and if it's you know if it's summer 2019 and you're planning money for the family vacation and how that's going to work, you know, a firearm to protect your stack of toilet papers, maybe not top of the list. (laughs) I think that's a good note to end on. (laughs) We had to make a TP reference. We had to. We had to. Well, I, So I guess to wrap this up, I just hope that everybody stays healthy and stays safe and stays sane during the quarantine. Danny's going to be pretty much alone in the museum for a couple of weeks. So I told him that if he doesn't have a tinfoil hat on our next uh, video chat, I'm going to be really sad. And I've got this cabinet of whiskey behind me that you can't see on the podcast, but I'm going to make some use of that. Yeah. Hope you guys enjoyed it and enjoyed our little thought experiment. And we'll uh, catch you next time. Bye.